Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I am doing fabulous today. I am, I'm very, it's a good day. Would you call it a picture perfect day, Holly? I would say it is a picture, I think that is the perfect phrasing. It is a picture perfect day. And why, why is that, Dave? Well, we have Lynn Goldsmith today in our virtual studios. How exciting is that? Oh, this is awesome. I know you met her a few weeks ago. You went to her book signing at the Morrison Gallery. Her most recent book is called Music in the 80s, and you had it signed by her. That's indeed correct. And so you meet someone in person. And then you say, hey, can you be on my podcast? <laughs> this book that we are talking about, Music in the 80s, is a book of all the artists that she photographed in the 80s. And the photos are beautiful. And she has photographed everybody that we could possibly be interested in. Yes. And so we will get into everything about her career and these beautiful photographs that she took. Some of this will be chopped up into little bits and pieces. Where can they find that? Little morsels of our chat with Lynn could be found on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and also on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast. Why don't we get right into it? This is Lynn Goldsmith on the What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Hi. Hi. First of all, how are the slopes today? Did you go out? And, and yeah, you can see I'm still in my ski top. Yeah. Oh, so lucky. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm a very lucky girl in, mm-hmm. on all levels. Yes. I'm so happy to meet you. I know you met a few weeks ago. I wasn't able to make it to the Morrison Gallery, for which I'm very sorry and bummed, but... Thank you for doing this. Okay. She doesn't have Maybe one of these. Maybe here in Nashville, you can visit us at uh, rockandrollphotogallery.com. Is that where you're living now, you in, in Nashville? Uh, that's our main home and where I have a gallery. And we represent the same artists and others that Morrison does, just like Henry Diltz, who's a wonderful photographer. He's the founder of Morrison Hotel Gallery, and I'm the founder of Rock and Roll Photo Gallery. Uh, basically, when I am in Nashville... I rarely ever leave my house because that's where all my film is located, where I have a photo studio, where I have a painting studio, where I have my print studio. And I also have 26 mile hiking, biking park around the block and an art museum right behind my house. So whereas a lot of things happen Uh, with artists in East Nashville and there are various events or whatever. I sort of get my fill of events in New York, LA or Aspen. You are definitely not from Nashville. No, uh -uh. no, but I, every 20 years I move to a place that I feel uh, will be uncomfortable for me. I think it's very important for artists to have what I call and what Will Powers calls a pattern interrupt, that you have to put yourself in uh, positions that are uncomfortable for you. And when I first came to the mountains, I'm basically a water girl. Besides that being my birth sign as an Aquarius, um, it's also I went to high school in Miami Beach, In Michigan, you know, we had lakes. And uh, so coming to the mountains was a test for me. And I loved it. And then 20 years later, and now, uh, you know, I come back because it's very much a part of my heart. I miss the mountains and the nature that is here, which seems to be very untouched compared to most other parts of uh, the United States that I've been to. Um, And Nashville is very, very different for me because, you know, I'm not comfortable in the South for a variety of reasons. And I wanted to explore that more. So I think I should leave my house. (laughs) But I haven't worked up that courage yet. (laughs) How long have you lived there now? Four years. Okay. So Well, two of it was COVID. When I first got there, I was gung-ho, ready to go. I opened the gallery and the gallery in part is because I collect myself and I love meeting people who either I can help educate as to why some art is a better investment value than other art and why there's reasons for it. And because I really like to be able to know that I'm helping to have uh, people in their homes 
have something that they can look at, which really resonates for them. It might not even be a good investment. It could just resonate. And that's actually the most important reason. I keep busy with a lot of things when I'm there, also knowing that when I go to other places, I'm going to be out and about a lot. So, you know, for the kind of work that I do, especially as a painter, you know, it's very singular and I don't see that many people. So it's fun for me to really be in cities where, A, I have longtime friends, but also where there's an energy on the street. And so far in Nashville, you know, people aren't really out on the streets, except in downtown. And that's mostly tourists and bachelorettes who have come to explore their last moments (laughs) of freedom. Yes, it's the bachelorette capital of the world. So at first I found it really entertaining and now I just find it disgusting and annoying. (laughs) Sure. Cause now you're Uh, a local. That's, that's what you're supposed to be thinking. I, I take people visiting me there because I do have to say that the building for the country music hall of fame mm-hmm. uh, houses two concert venues that I think, and I've been in a lot of concert venues that I think are really terrific. One only holds 150 people oh. where songwriters talk about their work and play some songs. And another one holds maybe 400 very small concerts that the seats are great, the sound is great. And the Country Music Hall of Fame is really a wonderful experience. They just don't focus on the visual arts, which I'm, you know, most interested in for art galleries and the like in a way that one might think a city would. They're really music oriented. What has surprised you the most about Nashville? Is it like the people or the the landscapes or what, what do you look forward to seeing every day or just experience? Well, Nashville for me is very much a, a hibernation. So I don't go there to experience. Um, before COVID, the idea was that I would take car trips mm-hmm. to places in the South and you know, maybe document them photographically or drawing and inspired by something for a painting. But COVID hit not long after we moved there. So I really got in a routine of uh, painting in my studio and, you know, working on my book projects and making photographic prints. So I'm very busy there and the space is probably the most beautiful workspace I've ever had. So I'm not that motivated to (laughs) go out and about. Have you shot photographs a lot in Nashville? Well, I've I've had uh, some artists in my studio that I've photographed, but uh, not as much as I did in all the other places that I've ever lived. Uh, Nashville is a place from my experience and I've talked about this with other people who moved there. It's odd. For the most part, the people who have lived there, they wait about five years for you to be there to really feel like you're a Nashvillian. They keep their communities kind of closed. And, you know, I was a bit concerned about this at first because I've always been pretty able to make new friends easily. And and I thought, oh, is it because I'm old now or, you know, whatever. And so one of the reasons I, my husband and I chose to move to Nashville is because we're very good friends with John Oates and his wife, Amy. We came to Aspen at the same time. I knew John from New York, you know, Daryl and John. John didn't give up his house in Aspen, but he moved and became a full-time resident in Nashville. And he kept saying, you and Sid have to live here. You and Sid have to live here. <laughs> and so we moved there and then John's never there. He's always like off on tour somewhere. So I, I said to him, we we were discussing this and he said, yeah, the same thing happened to him. I said, well, you could have warned me because <laughs> at my age, I don't have five years for people to decide if like they should become friends with me or not. So it's an interesting 
choice to to get up and just move to a place without ever, you know, renting there or sensing what it is. I just do it. It's interesting that I can do it really because I always have my loft in New York. So it's not that I'm that brave because I always have a place, you know, to run home to. You have one more year and then you're you're in. That's it. You get you get into the club. They give you a key. You walk right in and then that's all there. Well, you know, I also I leave a lot. So you got to make that effort to get out there. And, you know, at a certain time in your life, having good friends takes time, effort and energy. You know, I I don't let time go by before uh, I spend time with like there's a woman who I was partners with at Life magazine, Nancy Griffin, and she moved to L.A. We're very close. I wouldn't let. Other than like the COVID time, I wouldn't let a year go by where we didn't spend some time together or you don't check in and talk with people. So when you get to my age and you have X amount of friends, you know, it's my own fault. Sometimes I feel like, well, maybe when these friends die, I could bring in some new friends, (laughs) but I don't really have time. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about your paintings. I have an Instagram that I started, which is just my paintings but not that many of them there oh i know you can see them if you went to lynngoldsmith.com under portfolios there's fine art and there's a link to my paintings fully abstract expressionist work oh okay my original uh, you could say was more in the vein of uh, folk art of basquiat and then i moved into more abstract expressionist In your gallery in Nashville, with your own work, do you have photographs and the paintings? A different room has paintings, Mm -hmm. and the photo gallery is all photography. And I used to have a brick-and-mortar gallery here in Aspen, where I am right now. And so when we moved to Nashville, I I didn't really want to leave the house that much, so we put everything under one roof. So this gallery is really only open by appointment. Did you try in college? Did you study photography or art? Uh, I studied psychology. Okay, perfect. That makes sense. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) You know, my father was a serious amateur photographer. So I've been making pictures since I'm, you know, like eight years old, and in the dark room. And my uh, sister focused on painting. And I always felt she was so much better than me. So it wasn't until my sister uh, was no longer able to paint due to immune deficiency. I only use oils. I wouldn't really use acrylics and maybe because I'm trained by her. And I've always, as a kid, even, you know, she would take me to the Detroit Museum of the Arts, which had, which was really one of the greatest art museums for, you know, the paintings of the masters. And, you know, we were kids and we'd have magnifying glasses and she'd explain Van Gogh's brushstroke. So, yeah, it's just I didn't take it on because that was her area and mine was photography. I have no artistic talent, so it's always amazing to me. You can paint, you can photograph, and I know you directed TV and commercials and stuff. All of that is I'm sure they're related as an artist can. Nah. Okay. Well, it is in a way. I shouldn't just go nan. You know, it is all, everything's related, but, but it comes from, you know, you see yourself as someone who's not an artist. And I saw myself as someone who could do absolutely anything, anything a boy could do. And that was fortunately for me, uh, supported, you know, by my mother. I felt like if I wanted to be an Academy Award winning actress, I could be that. It's what do I want to do? What will actually provide a platform for me to learn more, what will provide a platform for me to grow as a human being. But I never think that there's anything that I can't do. To me, it's hard. I mean, it's it's work. It doesn't come. Yours, yours just looks effortlessly beautiful, and I'm sure it's not effortless. 
Um, well, thank you. I, you know, I, I was also blessed in that uh, my mother uh, was uh, an interior designer. Okay. Um, so, you know, colors, how colors mix with each other. And there, there are various things as a child that I had the privilege to experience. And so it never seemed like any hurdle for me. Talking with Lynn Goldsmith about all her favorite things, but let's take a break right now. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with Lynn Goldsmith. Okay, you're armed with a camera. And what was it that drew your attention immediately? Like, was it your name is known for rock photography? But what was that initially? Like, I, I you went to the local shows or was it something else that's like football games? I didn't, or- go to, I didn't do it to shoot shows yeah. at all. Uh, that doesn't really interest me and never did, except as kind of like a director and to get to know people better and to know my equipment better. Because for me, shooting a concert was an opportunity not only to see the artist, because the artist is not always in real life Mm. who they are on the Mm -hmm. stage. And what the fan wants is the person on stage to feel that they've been led into their world and to still find them to be iconic to be the golden calf that they can worship. So it also provided a way for me to learn to use my equipment really quickly because lights never stayed the same, low level lights. It was real good training for that. But I was not someone who went because of any drive other than like maybe Bob Dylan. You know, that I I would have gone to whether I was taking a picture or not. I'm talking about when I was young <laughs> and he actually sang <laughs> his songs. Um, oh, stop it. Uh, well, he's uh, yeah. to do whatever he wants to do, you know. I was far more interested, you know, people would think, oh, don't you want to photograph? And they'd name, you know, like James Taylor or Van Morrison in concert. It's like, no, I'd rather photograph Kiss because... I don't care what the music is. They're dramatic. Stuff happens. They move across the stage. But shooting shows also puts me in a place where I don't have to think up a concept 
I didn't have to do hair, makeup and styling, which I had to do in my studio because in the early days, they didn't have a budget for hair, makeup and styling. And with my awareness of paint, makeup came pretty easily. Yeah. And I always did a a variety of work. It's just that because people love various musicians so much generally because they've either bonded with other people at a show and and therefore created a community so they have a tribe, or it's because the words of a particular song and the sound of it healed them in some way. And it's really all about connecting. So for me to be able to serve in that way is great, and I appreciate that I'm known for something and that everyone gets pigeonholed to a certain degree. But, you know, at the same time, I was photographing all different kinds of people, whether they were famous people, you know, like doing Star Wars in the 80s. I was the special or I I shot a lot of movie stars. I shot Bereznikov. I shot uh, you know a lot of people. You know, and I would be like, why do they keep calling me? I don't even know what a rock photographer is. Does he photograph rocks? I make portraits. Even my photographs of flowers, I think of as portraits or my fl- or my pictures of dolls. You know, I'm making a portrait of them. Uh, it used to bother me, but because I feel that when people limit me to that label, they're in fact limiting themselves. And that is upsetting, but it's understandable because we have so much going on in the world, especially today, but it's always been that way. There's a lot happening for you to ingest and we need to create categories or boxes Mm -hmm. in order to function and make decisions. So in that way, I can't really fault being called something, but I get very upset even being called a woman photographer. Let's do a show on the women photographers. It's like, I'm a photographer. And whether you're a woman or whether you're a guy, it's like the image you're making, you know? So personally, you know, it has always been distasteful to get boxed into certain labels. It's probably because, you know, I want my life to be limitless and I want other people to experience their life that way because we're only here for a certain period of time and it's really a gift to be here. I mean, Earth is an amazing planet. (laughs) As troubled as it is right now, it actually hurts me when people don't give themselves the opportunities to try things, whether it's based out of fear or they're attached to an identity that they want other people to perceive them as. So you've been taking pictures since you were a little girl, but what your entry into it as a professional? I was always taking pictures. The one consistent element of my life has been I always made photographs. And in part, it's because I was always uncomfortable being anywhere if I didn't have a camera. You know, it's a piece of glass between me and the world. And it's also not only something that I can hide behind if I choose to, but it's also something that creates a bond between you and other people. You know, the image that you create. Mm -hmm. You know, I did all the pictures and took them around to all the magazines and the rest of it. So it gave me an idea of what magazines really wanted and how there were magazines all over the world who wanted pictures, not just mm-hmm. in this country. You can, clearly, you have a restless spirit. You're you're always you're looking for, like you're enjoying one thing, but looking for, for something, some new adventure. You're always looking for a new adventure is what I'm gathering from our, this time. Well, I'm looking for challenges, and that's the adventure. The adventure is being here and knowing that there is so much more to learn about yourself and the world and other people. And the camera was a passport. I also work for National Geographic. I do that one month a year, you know, and go to other places, especially with that name behind you, the people in that country 
open up. It's just like, you know, if an artist, if you said, oh, I'd like to shoot you on spec or whatever, you know, it's a short moment that they might give you to photograph them. Whereas if you said, I'm working for Rolling Stone, oh, take all day. Do you need two days? <laughs> so geographic provided, you know, that opportunity to learn about really be taken in by people in various countries. So the camera was just a tool for me to be able to be part of other people's lives and learn things. That's why, like, you know, people say, oh, weren't you on the road with so-and-so? I would never stay on the road. That's ridiculous. It's really boring for me. I don't want to shoot the same thing all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be around the same people all the time. Because if you're on tour with the Rolling Stones, they're the center of the universe. And that's what everybody on tour talks about. That's all anybody cares about. And their position in that kind of thing. So I would leave and then come back. And because I was fresh with fresh ideas, you know, everybody wanted to talk to me. (laughs) So, you know, that also supported the fact that like, you got to get out in the world. Okay. So the reason we are talking is the, uh, the music in the eighties book. Uh, Yes. So the layout of the cover is this, you are, you are the photographer, you are the artist not just the author of the book, is that your vision? The co- Was the cover your vision for oh, it? Or yeah. did you Elizabeth, have- Elizabeth Van Italy has been the designer of my books since New Kids. And I have 15 books. Mm-hmm. And the reason I work with her and demand, uh, there are publishers, Tash and whatever, who say, you have to work with our designers. And I just said, then you're not working with me. Because I'm a package, you know, I'm with Elizabeth. I do it selfishly because it's like, I don't even have to talk. We like are on the same wavelength. And if anything, she could convince me to try something that I might, I might've said, I don't know. And that trust in her vision, just like I do with people in the photo studio, it's like, hey, let's just try this. If it doesn't work, we can destroy it. And when you have people that you collaborate with in that way, it makes anything you do far more enjoyable because you're not doing it alone. You're doing it with a person that you know gets you and gets the world the way you do. Yeah. So the design of the cover is Elizabeth's. But yes, I say, you know, I don't think we should have one person on the cover for the 80s. The point of the book is to really show what an amazing decade it was, both musically and in fashion, because it was so diverse, Mm -hmm. you know? And we lived in this world that welcomed the diversity, that welcomed going from Rastafarian to disco. There's such different looks, And I think that a big part of that was the, you know, the coming of MTV Mm -hmm. and people all over the world being able to experience music in a gestalt way, in a way where the music and the visuals powerful on their own, but you put them together. And that's what you call the gestalt in singular fashion they're both powerful but together that's it and that's really how i created will powers in the 80s it was because of that thinking that i wasn't making commercials for the music i was making music and sound and i wasn't even really calling myself just a singer songwriter or whatever i said i was an optic music artist So and that the work was made together in my mind when I wrote Will Powers. Who is Will Powers? Some of you may know that once upon a time, the Thompsontons were a seven piece disaster area and then we met Will Powers. So if you want to form a successful group, listen to Adventures in Success.
I thought I could play the guitar. For many years, I tried very hard to do my best playing the guitar, and I realised that I wasn't getting anywhere until I heard Will Powers. And now I can play more than three chords and solo for at least 20 seconds. Wow, okay. You know, you worked with National Geographic and you work with celebrities. I love like these intimate like photographs of you at a, at a restaurant. I like, how do you get their trust? Because it's like you're like, in their circle. It's, it's like you're, well, you're you know, the difference yeah, now is now compared to back then. And I could do that now with those people is we were all in the same age group, right? Okay. If that was some young group now and I'm there, I don't know if I'd be as welcomed, even if they trusted me from whatever. But it's like these people were, you know, my friends. These people were people I went to the movies with. These people uh, were individuals that they got me and I got them. And they knew I always had a camera on. Okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was always accepted then. You're, you're having, you're having dinner with someone, you're having dinner with Tina Turner and Sting and you have a camera with you as one does. What I, yeah, that's <laughs> what I do. And believe me, everybody was always happy to get pictures of themselves with uh, other people. Uh, Jill Kremitz, who was married to Kurt Vonnegut, they would go to dinner parties or Sunday brunch, you know, with a lot of authors. Jill would take pictures, you know, just like I did. Only Jill would then send the host pictures with an invoice. Wow, nice. <laughs> I never did that. I never, I never did that. Because, you know, it was like, I just wanted to give people a picture. Like They didn't need a single picture of themselves. They could care less, you know. For the most part, most of those people are impressed by the other people they're with. So they like to get a picture with them. Mm. So it is ego for everyone. Like I need to be seen with this person. This is a good shot. Yeah. They just like it. Yeah. It's a memory. It, 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 well, right. I know it's, it's like your mom taking a picture with the family, but except, you know, yeah. your family is. And, and the reason I put work like that in the eighties book was because as a book of photography that people are going to pay money for, Many photo books are basically the same, like if someone's known as a studio portrait photographer, it's like portrait after portrait after portrait. And I'm trying to show with particularly this book, but probably all my books, that, you know, there's different situations and I'm capable and also have been able to make not only studio portraits that are thought out, but location portraits that are thought out and location portraits that aren't thought out. Documentary work and then concert work, which is very similar to documentary work. To be able to show that range of a period of time, a decade. The book opens up with a photograph of young people honoring, there, maybe there's a couple of older ones in the shot, outside the Dakota, uh, John Lennon, when he died. And that was 1980, you know, that was the rest of the decade came kind of out of this closer connection to each other because we lost someone who meant so much to so many. I didn't want to do a book on the 80s because before I started it, I really had a bad attitude. I was doing what I tell people not to do, you know, making judgments like, oh, because I just thought it was the bad hair decade and shoulder pads and, oh, <laughs> but it was truly amazing. And I can look back now and understand it so much better and really look at how lucky we were because in these times with globalization, so much of everything is the same, you know? And people don't really welcome diversity. They want their thing to really, you know, like hip hop should run everything, you know? It's like, no, there's all kinds of forms that they all should have a great level of popularity because everyone should be entitled to make a choice about what really resonates for them. 
So what changed your mind about making the book about the well, 80s? Looking at, looking at the range, you know, seeing that at the same time that Ashford and Simpson were big and disco was big, that Herbie Hancock could have a hit with Rocket. He was known as a jazz guy, but his sold as many records as the other form did. And the same thing that was really the beginning of the popularity of reggae. And yet at the same time, that was also Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Bon Jovi. I mean, you know, it was the hair band. And I found that my immediate reaction when asked if I would do a book on the 80s was common amongst my friends who are my age. The book opens up with a number of quotes from people of different generations. And if you look at, you know, the people who are my age, Chris Stein of Blondie, Iggy Pop, it's all like, oh, the 80s. <laughs> uh, and then I also asked people like Ben Stiller, you know, who the 80s, he was 14. That's his time. Then there's the one and only Keith Richards, who's quote, goes be, you know, he's timeless. So wouldn't matter what decade it was, you know, it's you're on Keith time. And uh, that was really eye opening to me about how my friends felt basically about the 80s, the way that I had before doing. Yeah. So at the time, I mean, you know, Madonna and, and Michael Jackson ruled the 80s. I imagine that you maybe not a huge fan of their music, but maybe looking like you took some amazing photos of those. And now looking back, do you find yourself nostalgic about that time? I don't have time? to love music to make good photos of it. I just have to put myself in the shoes of the fan. Yeah. That's the secret to everything in life. Put yourself in other people's shoes and give them what, you know, what those shoes want. I had worked with Michael Jackson for a long time and his management wanted me to work with Madonna. And I listened to her. They thought she was going to be great. And I thought she was awful. And I was like to Freddie DeMann and Ron Wisner, I was saying, are you joking? You know, it's like Cindy Lauper can sing. Okay. Why don't you go after her? I know her boyfriend manages her, but like that girl has talent. And do I regret that I <laughs> that I didn't do more with Madonna? Sure. And and you know, she's like me from Detroit. She's feisty. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll fight all the way. Right. And that says something for her. And she worked really hard. Yeah. And I have huge respect for what she made of herself and the kinds of records that she made. No, it's just these judgments that we make. And even though I would like to be limitless in my thinking and not constrain any other human being to a kind of limitation, I do it. I do it myself. We all do it. But I I try to catch myself in it. Was there any imposing personality that you ever met where you got, was there someone like that you were excited to meet? Well, only Bob Dylan. What was it about Bob Dylan that when you met him, that was it? Well, most people, I think I'm smarter than them and I think I'm funnier. And so there are those people who are definitely smarter and funnier than me, like Frank Zappa. I mean, that was smart, but Bob is definitely smarter than me often funnier than me, and he's inscrutable. And so he was also the one, you know, when I was 14, really changed my outlook on life. Mm -hmm. So before him, it was Fred Astaire. So meeting Bob was intimidating, but once I met him, there's no point. I just don't see any point. I can't do good work. You know, you have to make a decision like, hey, it's a person just like you. They put their pants on one leg at a time. Okay, they might have certain gifts or talents. There's all kinds of stuff that you don't know why these people have these gifts. And it doesn't mean that they're particularly kind, intelligent, (laughs) funny. It just means they have this gift. Intimidation was never in my wheelhouse feeling intimidated, except, you know, as I said, uh, you know, when I first met Bob. 
So you had a thing for song and dance, man. Is that what's? <laughs> well, that's a good way. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I definitely did. No, no. It's like when I was little, before I was 14, you know, you watched black and white movies on TV. And when you're that young, you sit really close to the TV and you get lost <laughs> in it. And Fred Astaire movies, he would, especially the ones with Ginger Rogers, there was always some misunderstanding, but by the end of the movie, it was resolved that it was a misunderstanding. And then they would tap off and live life happily ever after. <laughs> and then I heard Bob Dylan's songs, and it's why I got a guitar. I think it was Bob, maybe it was Odetta. I got a guitar and uh, learned to play guitar because Bob wrote songs that made me think you wouldn't necessarily tap off into the sunset. The misunderstanding might not get resolved. <laughs> that wasn't the real one. And that was a big shift in my consciousness. And I think any kid, whether they're having the shift in consciousness or not, the music that means the most to you when you're like 14, 15 years old, that's a very powerful influence on your tastes and what it is you feel connected to for the rest of your life. That's why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> oh, why? Are you 14? <laughs> yeah, well, in 14, 15, yeah. that's where we were in the 80s. I was at the Bob Dylan Archives Museum in Tulsa. Have you visited there yet? No. Oh. I mean, I would like to, but yeah. I have. I'm sure your work is in there somewhere. I saw Bruce Springsteen there too. As a Springsteen fan, can you give me a Springsteen story? Something? <laughs> um, well, I'm working on a book that will be out next fall on Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. And I feel that there have been a lot of books on Bruce, including the one Bruce wrote himself. Mm. There hasn't really been as much as I would have liked to have seen on Bruce and the band. Oftentimes, they don't flourish the way that they would unless they are able to create a team to really put across their message. Just like I have Elizabeth in books. Bruce wrote a little introduction for it. I think the story of Bruce is really a story of a guy who made that commitment that music was a live or die situation. There was no other choice. What he was able to write and do, especially with the limited education, because it's not like Bruce went to college mm -hmm. and it's not like he was well-read. He wasn't. When we were particularly close in our youth, he had not read Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. It's like, Hey, that's required reading what in 12th grade? He wasn't interested, but it's like you look at his writing and that's the writing of someone who you would think at that time in his life by his mid twenties had read certain books. He got a lot from movies and how movies were written. You know, I have great respect for Bruce and also for artists like Bono who are able to write the way that they do because they really persevere in trying to be as deep, as honest, and as poetic. They respect the poetry that's in movies, that's in music, that they want to like take it to the next level. Bruce was really a big Dylan fan. This was actually before I met Bob and Bruce and I would like look through books of pictures of Bob Dylan and then try to do his hair like Bob's, <laughs> you know, like two kids playing it. Like we're going to make you Bob Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a little story. You know, and now, he, now he's Bob's best friend. Now they call each other up. You know? <laughs> yeah. I heard before the show that, that Bruce visited the archives as well to pay his respects, which yeah, but not, Bob wouldn't go. not surprising. Yeah. Bob, no, there's no way he's been there. <laughs> Why? Why would he, it's his life. Right. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Waste time looking at his own life. Makes perfect sense to me. The Rolling Thunder tour. Did you watch that movie where it's like, everyone's just, 
telling made up stories about about being on the Rolling Thunder tour. And that's just Bob Dylan just kind of like, eh, why tell the truth if uh, if there's a better story that we can tell? And and, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever people want to believe. Right, exactly. That's, Especially in these times, what is truth? Well, that's why we love photography, because that reveals truth, I believe. Oh, no, it doesn't. No? What? Don't no. T- oh, Lynn. No, don't ruin it for us. <laughs> it reveals my truth. Right, yes. Yeah. Okay, that that is very true. Has there been anybody who has surprised you that you had a, a vision of, you know, a preconceived idea that you, when you photographed them, it was a completely different experience than what you thought it would be? Yes. When I first started photographing, because I play music uh, during my shoots, both oh. to create an environment, a kind of, you know, when I was younger, I'd get younger, meaning like 13, 14, you get together with friends and you have 45s that you want to play for them and introduce them to this artist or that one. <laughs> Especially I was from Detroit and that was music was important to us because it, it was, you know, Motown. In creating later on what I would play during a shoot, I would think about music that they might not have heard that I think they'd really like. And if they did, it endeared them to me in a way that was different than they would have been with any other photographer. Uh, Bono tried stealing some of my mixtapes. So did Keith Richards, because I would find artists that I knew those artists would like, who's that, you know? I can't remember who the first heavy metal group was that I photographed. But I'm really not into listening to heavy metal, especially really loud. I like James Brown. I'm about, you know, the riff. I was surprised not only how they were kind of nicer and much smarter people than I expected, but how open they were to other music that I would play. I had limited them, you know, like, uh, and they were some of the nicest and also the straightest people, (laughs) you know, way different than Lou Reed. (laughs) (laughs) I think of them as like Midwestern guys, even though they're not from the Midwest. You know, my experience of coming from Detroit, we're brought up to be polite, work hard and do the best at your job that you can do because that should be your reward. Judas Priest. Yeah. And they even let me, Rob would walk around in his underwear. A lot of people think that because I'm female and maybe because of what I look like as a female, but first of all, because I'm female, you know, that I probably had to put up with a lot of people coming on to me or doing this or that. And I think in many ways, it's what you put out there. That didn't happen. And and heavy metal metal people were really respectful. I can say that, you know, I was well aware that oftentimes there were male photographers on tour with certain artists and the acts would tell them to pull certain girls out of the front stage area and bring them back or whatever. You know, nobody asked me to do that. They certainly wouldn't have been that comfortable. I wasn't necessarily invited backstage for <laughs> those kinds of parties. So you made you made mixtapes. You might maybe you had a future as a program director for a radio station. Did, what uh... Well, yeah, I think, you know, it's part of uh, I actually should have become and I thought about it 10 years ago, maybe 15 and maybe I still will, but you know, DJs are so popular now. <laughs> There's a two day festival here in Aspen that starts tomorrow. The headliner on one day is Jack White, and the other headliner is Kyoto Kaito. I asked somebody who he is, but he's a headliner, okay? And he's a DJ from Norway. Yeah. I'm like, are you joking? I mean, I went to a show that had like, I don't know, 20,000 people. And uh, I hadn't looked into, you You know, usually I will YouTube to see who it is. And it was called Girl Talk. So I thought maybe it's a band of girls or something. And I go and it's one guy like DJ. And I thought, <laughs> I, you know, I can do that with Will Powers. I put a big mask on my head. I can still dance. 
and they won't know my age. And, you know, I can do my thing and I can mix tapes. Well, I look forward to this next adventure. This is exciting. All right. Well, Powers on tour. Oh, yeah. Should we wrap this up? It's been really pleasurable. Thank you both. Thank you. Rock on. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate it. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right. Good times, Holly. How about that? Uh, What a life she has led. She's had such a fabulous career. So interesting. Has worked with all our favorite artists. And she's just so cool about it. (laughs) She is totally cool. You're right. I hope to be as cool as she is. I think that you'll be visiting her gallery when you go to Nashville. Yeah, that would be a great idea. I will definitely do that. How they find us, Holly? Find us on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and on social media at WDDIM Podcast. And we'll be happy to have you subscribe, like, engage with us. Tell us what you think. Whatever podcast platform you're listening on, please subscribe to us. You can visit us on WDDIMpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter, which comes out every month. All right, so let's just wrap this up. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.